You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to the Business Hour. I'm Ron Camacho, your host. And my guest is Michael Coles, an extraordinary serial entrepreneur who's been described as a man who has, and I quote, a habit to not only defy the odds against him, but also to turn obstacles into opportunities, near-fatal tragedies into triumphs, and poverty into philanthropic success. Michael was on the Business Hour previously, where we focused on some remarkable early years and a foundation of early lessons and principles for success that have served him well through his entire life. And today we'll talk more about his autobiography, Time to Get Tough, How Cookies, Coffee, and a Crash Led to Success in Business and Life, which he co-authored with his Kennesaw State University colleague, Catherine Lewis, Ph.D. The book is available on Amazon. Is that correct, Michael? Michael? In in both uh, hardback and uh, Kindle. Hardback and Kindle version, okay. Uh, Michael is a married father of three with seven grandchildren. His book explains how, despite growing up in an impoverished family in Buffalo, New York, he was able to achieve great success in business. In 1977, after 19 years in the apparel industry, he co-founded the Great American Cookie Company with his partner, Arthur Karp, with each investing $4,000. Their first location, which still exists, was at Perimeter Mall in Dunwoody, a suburb in North Metro Atlanta, and they built cookie sales to over $100 million when Cole sold it to Mrs. Fields' famous brands, another cookie company, in 1998. Following the Great American Cookie Company, Michael served as the CEO of Caribou Coffee for five years before stepping down in 2007. He did it all despite nearly losing his life in a motorcycle accident in 1997. Michael's also an avid cyclist. He has set three transcontinental bicycling world records. Welcome to the Business Hour, Michael. Nice to be back again. Um, By the way, that was 1977 that I had my motorcycle. What did I say? 97. Oh, I'm sorry. uh, 1977. Gee whiz. Did you sleep uh, at all during that time? Were you a guy who worked long days and slept uh, for short durations? Uh, during my last, well, not my last, my third crossing from Savannah to San Diego, I slept 22 hours and 11 days. Uh, but uh, the bike became my, my vehicle of transportation. That's the way I was able to train and run a business at the same time. I commuted to my office, which was about 28 miles away from where I lived. And I just commuted every day by bike, and that's how I got most of my training miles in. Well, I didn't just mean in crossing the country, which that averages, for anyone who hasn't done the math, to two hours a night uh, while you're crossing the country 2,500 miles on a bicycle. I meant during the last 35 to 45 years have you gotten by on little sleep because uh, you and I chatted off um, off air, and... Uh, it's as if you've led six or seven lives. Uh, how did you manage to accomplish all those things? What kind of a daily regimen allows you to be that productive? Uh, I like to do uh, get the things I hate the most out of the way early. So I generally get up pretty early. I work out early because I hate working out, as probably as a surprise to a lot of people. I hate working out, including I hate riding a bike. 
Um, but it was something I did, and um, I would just get up early and get it out of the way and so I'd have the rest of the day to do the things I really wanted to do. And I think for a lot of people, working out is a tough thing, and I recommend do it early, get it over with, because what it does is it, it makes you feel so good for the rest of the day because you know you've done something that most people haven't done yet. Well, I don't know if I feel good for the rest of the day, but I, I have a similar philosophy. It's called eat your vegetables first. <laughs> you know, I mean, I get it. Get it. Yeah. It's uh, it's 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 a crude analogy. Um, in Michael Cole's part one, for those of you who um, w- were able to listen to that program, or rather, for those of you who were not, we talked about his early years and how we're and now we're going to focus on even more, rather on his book, Time to Get Tough, How Cookies, Coffee, and a Crash Led to Success in Business and Life. And we'll pick it up um, with a summary of how you came to start the cookie company with with Arthur Carp. Give us a summary. We talked about it in great length uh, last program, but how did that uh, happen? Well, I had been in the clothing business, as you stated early, uh, for about 19 years, and the industry was changing. Uh, I had been traveling about three days a week, but now that the industry was moving overseas, I knew I was going to wind up having to be gone three weeks a month. I had three small kids, and I just didn't want to be gone that much. And so I had made a decision when, as I went to a clothing show in San Diego that um, I was going to find something else to do. I still thought it would probably be somewhat related to the clothing business, but I saw a cookie store uh, in California, and there was a long line of people standing in front of it, and I got in that line just like the other people uh, because I always served my customers uh, treats when they were coming to look at what we were selling. And uh, the cookies were just okay. They weren't great, but there were literally, by the time I got to the counter, there were as many people, at least 50 people, that were in front of me when I started, and there were probably 50 people behind me when I got to the counter. So the business was very good. The store manager uh, told me all kinds of information about the business, which most I didn't believe. I went to a grocery store after I left him. I bought all the ingredients to make chocolate chip cookies. I went to a uh, drugstore and bought a postage scale so I could weigh out the product to see if the food costs aligned with what he said. It did. I was got pretty excited about it. I came back to Atlanta. I got off the plane and told my wife, Donna, that uh, I was going to get out of the clothing business. Uh, I was going to sell my interest in the Great American Clothing Company to my partner. And that while we're figuring out what we're really going to do for the rest of our lives, just to have some income, let's open a cookie store. And, um, you know, fate stepped in, you know, six weeks after we started the company, I had this devastating motorcycle accident, and basically I was forced to do nothing else but focus on the cookie business. And one day I woke up after we had about 20 stores and thought to myself, well, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. Because during those year, that during that year or two until we got to 20 stores, I was still looking at other opportunities. Well, that's a really great summary. You know, I won't go drill down into this, but in the first segment we talk about how there was skepticism about whether or not a cookie store could succeed in a mall environment. You had some pushback from the mall manager. You had pitched him hard. He finally relinquished. Uh, you set up shop, and you had a fire. You burned some cookies uh, the very first day, and I love it when he asked, uh, is this 
what's going to happen every day. Well, you know, the interesting thing about that, and I think it's a great lesson for your listeners, is that we had uh, really studied the business for, I mean, seven, eight months. Matter of fact, the reason we were able to get the store open in only 19 days is we had gone ahead and ordered all the equipment, and we actually had the equipment here in Atlanta. So once the store was built, we were able to move the equipment in and get started. But when, what I, I think the lesson is is that, we, he, well, first of all, we signed a 10-year lease, $25,000 a year rent, quarter of a million dollars. We had to personally guarantee it. And that first day, uh, when we put that first batch of 300 cookies in the oven, and when they were ready to come out and we opened up the oven door, we realized we had forgotten pan you know, uh, potholders or oven mitts or whatever you want to call them. Uh, we couldn't get the cookies out. Then they just kept rotating in the oven until they finally caught fire and the fire department came. And the truth is that when Jeff Wilde, the mall manager, walked up to the store that day, he could have broken the lease and we would have been held responsible for that $250,000. But the lesson in it is, is that you write a business plan, you study your business, you prepare for everything, and what gets you and what could have put us out of business was a $3 set of potholders. Yeah, I think that's a really important lesson in not overlooking the simple little things. Well, and more than that, I think it's that the difference between success and failure is how you deal with the unexpected, because that's what gets most businesses. And so... I really believe that, you know, it's not about getting knocked down. It's about staying down. And that's a reoccurring theme uh, in in your book. Um, Had you cultivated um, the business philosophy of what you call getting tough or TTGT, time to get tough, um, also um, included in the title of your book, but it's a methodology and a mindset. And uh, had you cultivated that philosophy yet? I think, you know, I, I would say that starting out as a poor kid, I would say that I woke up every day almost with that mantra because there were so many things around my life that were so negative towards me that the only way to really get up and try to do something with myself every day, uh, whether I knew it was time to get tough, I knew it was it was time to have to persevere. And I think, you know, when you start out like I liked it at 11 and 13, and you grow up having to do that every day. I mean, it just becomes part of who you are. So we're going to be moving um, forward and back because in the book, you know, you talk about um, various philosophies and methodologies for, for becoming successful in business and in life. But it's it's not entirely chronological because you're making references to uh, lessons from the past that you're pl- pl- applying in the current context. Um, so now we're going to jump ahead. In 2003, you took the helm of Caribou Coffee, and you proceeded to double its size and take it public two years later. Why did you decide to become the CEO following your success with the Great American Cookie Company? You didn't need a job. Were you looking for a new challenge? Uh, no, I, I was not, actually. I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but um, in 2002, I took on a consulting project uh, from the then owners of Caribou. They had owned the company for a couple of years, and the company was not going anywhere. It was not growing. It was in negative same-store sales, uh, and they basically hired me to f- 
find out whether they had just made a bad deal. Could the company expand? Could it become everything they thought it could? Or if they had made a bad deal, they just were going to, you know, uh, cut you know, cut their losses and sell the company to somebody else. And so I started this consulting project for them. I went finally visit. I wound up visiting about 50 stores. But somewhere around 35 stores, I realized something that I, I w- wish I had realized early on, and that was I noticed in almost every store I went to, someone would walk in with a caribou baseball hat or a caribou T-shirt. Uh, and I thought to myself... Then and now, I have never been in a Starbucks where I've ever seen anybody wearing a Starbucks baseball cap or a Starbucks T-shirt. And so what I realized was that Caribou, in fact, was a brand religion. Their customers loved the brand, loved the product. They just needed help. And I had never had the opportunity in my business life to ever work with a brand that had that kind of connection to its customers where they were great supporters. As a matter of fact, when I was in Minneapolis on my way to the support center, I saw a car parked down the street with a bumper sticker on the back that said, friends don't let friends streak Starbucks. And when I looked at the bottom of it to see who actually had made it, it was a customer, not Caribou. One of Caribou's customers made it. I got really excited because I thought to myself, this is an opportunity to run a brand like Harley Davidson, run a brand like Apple, you know, and most of those companies today, when you think of them being very successful, what we forget about with a company, especially like Apple, they were in a lot of trouble at one time. And Steve Jobs did two things. He, one, created this incredible customer loyalty to the brand of Apple, but also he became himself a brand religion. And that's an amazing accomplishment. You know, if we get a chance, we'll, we'll drill down a little bit more into um, brand religion uh, and talk about um, why you shared with your senior management uh, some of the lessons of Harley-Davidson and of Apple to get them to understand the value of, of brand religion. Uh, I might add that uh, I hadn't thought about it until now, but uh, even though I drink Starbucks coffee, I... Um, I don't own a Starbucks uh, cup, but I do own a beautiful uh, caribou coffee mug. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's one of those great uh, Pacific Northwest, even though it's, uh, or maybe upper Midwest, like in Minnesota, uh, you know, got a caribou on the uh, on the ceramic cup, and uh, uh, it's, uh, it's one of my favorite. Um, so the brand worked with me. I always felt welcomed. I loved the... Uh, the, the the hunter's lodge or the log cabin chalet composite uh, look and feel uh, with the fireplaces. I remember a super cold day up in uh, Ohio, and I went into a, a caribou with a blazing fire. Hadn't experienced it down here in Atlanta yet, even though I had a caribou nearby that had a fireplace. But I did up in up in Ohio. Um, we're going to switch now to the Georgia Film Commission because as we're talking about these different lives, you did a lot of things which were distinctly different. Um, um, most people who head up uh, a major corporation as a CEO, uh, like a coffee company, uh, don't get involved in something uh, that's media-related, uh, certainly uh, not a film commission, 
but you were the chair of the Georgia Film Commission, and you spearheaded legislation that took the industry here in Georgia from a few hundred million in revenue to more than seven billion dollars in ten, revenue. Ten to twelve billion this year. Ten to twelve billion this year, um, and and growing. Um, tell us about that. How did you become with that? Become involved with the Georgia Film Commission as chairman? Um, when did you realize we can grow this uh, very, um, very ambitiously? Um, and uh, what did you do? Oh, well, we're going to take a break. Actually, when we come back, we'll focus on the Georgia Film Commission. We're here with Michael Coles. He's been talking about lots of chapters. Not just in his book, but in his life, which are also in the book. We'll be back with Michael right after this break. staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. We're here with Michael Coles, and we've been talking about various aspects of his life, various chapters, um, which are reflected in his book, Time to Get Tough, How Cookies, Coffee, and a Crash Led to Success in Business and in Life. And before the break, we were talking about when Michael um, became a member of the Georgia Film Commission and eventually the chair of the Film Commission and uh, spearheaded legislation and helped the Georgia film industry thrive, uh, I think beyond imagination, (laughs) uh, because it was really steep revenue growth. Uh, Tell us about that that time, Michael, how you became involved and uh, what went on to get the state uh, legislature to recognize the potential and some of the uh, other details that went into that. So uh, in 1998, uh, I had uh, just finished an unsuccessful run for the U.S. Senate. Uh, My very good friend, Roy Barnes, who had been a friend of mine for over 30 years, he and I campaigned uh, throughout Georgia during the 97-98 race. And when he became governor... Um, he called me and asked me if I would like to help him uh, in his administration. And if I did, well, what is it I'd like to do? And I remember just as clear as it was yesterday, I said, don't we still have a film commission here in the state? And he said, yeah. And I said, it doesn't seem to be very active. And the movie business, which used to be pretty good in the state, 
seems to have all disappeared. And so uh, he went back and said, well, you know, there's, there's no board. Uh, the commission hasn't met in years. And he said, if you'd like to head that up, he said, I would love to have you do it. So I said, great. So I, he made me the chair. And it was wonderful because I didn't have – there were no board members. I could basically pick and choose between uh, the governor and myself – uh, the 40-member board that we wanted to put together. And um, I remember going to my first meeting with a guy named Greg Torrey, who is the exec – he was the paid guy, the executive director of the film commission. And um, we met at the OK Cafe, and he brought in a very elaborate PowerPoint presentation. He also thought that I was coming in that morning to fire him. Uh, <laughs> And uh, nothing could have been farther from the truth. And I sat down with him, and I said, what is it you want to accomplish at this meeting? He said, well, he said, you know, if I'm going to kind of keep my job, he said, we got to find a way to revitalize the, the industry so we can bring more movies here. And I looked at him, and I said, Greg, you know, first of all, you're asking the wrong question. Uh, the question is, how do we how do we bring more movies here? That's not the question. The question is, why does anybody come here in the first place? Because we are still making some movies. And he went through all of the reasons. And the basic reason that people were still coming to George is they loved filming here. They loved the people. They loved the talent that was here. They loved the airport because they could get in and out of the airport and get back home when they weren't filming. He went through a plethora of reasons as to why people came and my belief was that until you can figure out what your brand uh, value is uh, of what you already have, you can't begin to build on bringing more business until you figure out why you already have some business. And so uh, after learning all of that, and tax incentive became one of the primary goals that we would have to put together. But more than anything, I needed a talented board of people who were co as committed to bringing the industry back as I was, and I put that together with an incredible board. I did not do this on my own. I surrounded myself by with all the types of people that would have an impact on the business. We put together a ideation meeting and laid out a strategy of bringing the business back that had a lot of components to it, but the number one component was creating a tax incentive to be competitive. You know, I, I know that uh, a lot of people think that uh, that it was only the tax incentive uh, that uh, helped attract uh, uh, film production companies to Atlanta, but you laid a foundation that allowed people um, like Rick Wrights, uh, who was president of the local Screen Actors Guild here in Atlanta and who has been on this program and who credits you and the the, the commission for laying that foundation that allowed him to take a trip with a couple other folks. Uh, when did, did that happen? The group that went over to London and talked to the Screen Gems, or rather the uh, um, it, Pinewood Studios. Um, he, you know, he talked about pitching Pinewood Studios, one of the largest film production uh, organizations uh, on the planet. Uh, they were the James Bond. Uh, uh, production studio they were the lord of the rings production studio they were huge literally and figuratively they had many sound stages which is one measure of how big the film industry is in any uh, geographic uh, region and pitched them uh, the tax incentive would have been a part of it but there were all these other things that went into it uh, including every county and we have lots of counties uh, per capita in georgia 
that had uh, location scouts to find locations for film production companies uh, all around the world that might need a farmhouse on the edge of a waterfall with a water wheel or whatever. You know, the word gets out. People send uh, images into a database. Things like that that make it easy for a production company. And I, you know, I think that all started with your effort to uh, create public policy, but to also make the Film Commission really a, a heads up uh, organization. So uh, when we realized that all of what you just said, many, much of that existed, uh, but it was unknown. We weren't getting it out to enough people. But the most important thing that I recognized, maybe it was because of my, my few years I dabbled in politics, I realized that the most important thing was to get this bill passed, that we had to get a buy-in from the legislature. And so what I did for about a year, I traveled the whole state, and I had a, uh, I had a film made. And the film started off with a picture of the Grand Canyon, and then it went to New York City, and then it went to the Sierra Desert, and then it went to uh, various other places around the world. And at the very end of it, it said, it read on the screen, these were all filmed in Georgia. And so that, that became my opening to Rotary Clubs, Chamber of Commerces. And then I would go through the economic impact of bringing a movie or a TV show to an area. And what it could do is clean. It's a clean business. It has no environmental negative impact, high-paying jobs lots of restaurants, lots of hotels. And so I did that. I went all over the state. And the reason I did it is I wanted the local people to know how they could benefit from it. So if their state legislator voted against it, they were going to have hell to pay when they came back home. And so when we got that legislation on the floor, we basically knew it was going to pass because we had done so much groundwork and everything that has happened happened because of that very first bill. The minute it passed, we started writing the second one, which would have been broader, which unfortunately I didn't get to pass, but we basically had written it uh, before the end of my term. And, you know, you, you um, mentioned that a lot of those things w existed um, uh, when you arrived uh, and that most people didn't know about it. Uh, you know, I, I was in the the media business. I transferred from Los Angeles uh, with CBS, and I was aware to some extent that we had uh, some production capabilities here. Um, a, a, a sizable group of skilled technicians was what, what you need, but with a growing number coming, and that's what you did was create an environment for skilled production people to, to want to come here and live here. It all, it's a tribute also to the quality of life in Georgia exactly. uh, that, that, that you leverage uh, to, along with the tax incentive, get people to want to come here so that we ended up with uh, thousands more um, set designers, location uh, um, directors, uh, talent uh, people, um, camera people, electricians, you know, and, and, and so on. And let's not forget, we have a great airport, which is also a very big factor in people wanting to be here. And what I think is the beauty of what's happening today is I run into people all the time who are telling me that their kids who went to L.A. to get into the movie business are all moving back here because the opportunities are bigger here. Uh, no doubt. And, and uh, I hear the same uh, about uh, folks who went to the Wilmington Studios uh, in North Carolina, <clears throat> sorry that we may have had an impact, but uh, 
a lot of those folks have uh, come to Atlanta. And uh, you're right about the airport because Screen Gems is right around the corner from the airport. And Pinewood Studios located itself not too far from the airport. Um, now we're going to switch again. We're going to switch to uh, giving back. Um, you're currently the president of Hill Hills of Georgia, which supports the Jewish student community on campuses, and you're a supportive uh, member of nonprofits from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta to the American Heart Association, Emory Healthcare, the Walker School, and Georgia State University. And do you do this, Michael, because you believe in the time-honored principles of giving back, the golden rule, uh, to whom much is given, much is expected? I mean, what, what makes Michael Coles such a giver and you're now uh, a philanthropist of note? What, what, what makes that part of you tick? Well, first of all, uh, I really believe in, in uh, corporate citizenship, but it goes way beyond that for me. Um, I have been very fortunate, and education, which was generally where my wife and I first started uh, our philanthropy, I never had the opportunity to go to college. And so Kennesaw State University, where I'm very involved, uh, KSU, um, We've been very supportive of that. We endowed the business school. Uh, but I think more than anything else, I, I, I write about this in the book, I, I believe in the three W's, which is work, wisdom, and wealth. And um, I remember starting out without any money. Uh, if I found a cause or something I really believed in, I my wife and I both gave it work. I'm not sure about the wisdom. I think I helped uh, maybe guide uh, some folks thinking about things maybe in a different way. But I think that once we achieved some financial success, you know, we wrote checks to causes, but we primarily got wrote checks and then stayed involved because one of the things I really believe is that talent for most nonprofits if they can put a board together that has a lot, has really strong, talented people, they're getting talent they can't afford to hire. And so it sometimes is, I know it's easy to write a check and then not have to do anything, but I encourage my friends, my peers to just simply say, look, don't just write a check. Come here and be involved. Help us, guide us, give us your wisdom so that we can, in fact, really build what we're trying to with the kind of talent that we could not possibly ever afford by having you involved uh, in this in this nonprofit, and so uh, I, for me, it has always been that I believe I get more out of any one of those organizations organizations I've ever been involved in than I possibly could give, because to know that you're helping people that you will never meet is like the greatest gift you can have. Well, you've certainly done your part um, as a philanthropist, but also just a hands-on board member and supporter uh, because uh, it certainly wasn't writing a check to help uh, with public policy for the uh, Georgia Film Commission and also Georgia State University. It was... KSU. uh, Rather, Kennesaw Kennesaw State University, which we'll talk about right after this break. It was more than just writing a check. Uh, We're here with Michael Coles. We're talking about various chapters in his life and his book. We'll be back to talk more with Michael right after this break. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, 
You probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. I'm Ron Camacho, your host. And today we have the pleasure of having Michael Coles back to the Business Hour as a guest. Uh, In part one, we talked about an incredible combination of life experiences that I believe laid the foundation for a a man whose uh, success in business could be described in many ways, but but one way would be uh, grit. Uh, Michael has just a tremendous amount of uh, stick Intuitiveness um, and uh, and drive, and he uh, he works hard, and he uh, is willing to explore um, his options and the opportunities, and to to uh, surround himself with talented people and listen to those people. Um, and um, before the break, we were talking uh, about um, how. His relationship with Kennesaw State University is more than just one of helping to endow them um, with 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 money uh, to the extent that that they uh, bestowed the honor upon you of uh, naming the School of Business, the Coles College of Business at Kennesaw State University. Um, tell us about how that came to fruition. Well, I'd been involved. Uh, first of all, I was living up in Kennesaw at the time, uh, and lived wound up living there for actually for over thirty years. Uh, I went on the board in about nineteen ninety, and um, had become pretty good friends with the then president uh, Betty Siegel. Uh, we had a terrific dean in the business school, a guy named uh, Tim Mescon. And um, by the way, is Tim Mescon the son of Mike Mescon? He is. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is. Yeah. What yeah. what great uh, legacy there? Uh, yeah. Because uh, they were both, or are one of them is at least a very forward thinking, and the father was an extremely forward thinking. Was uh, professor was. of business. Yeah. So uh, Tim, when when he left the, the dean's uh, office at uh, KSU, he went on to become the president of uh, Columbus State. University is now in the Netherlands for a five-year stint. Anyway, circling back, um, 
We, my wife and I were very fortunate when we sold uh, the cookie company. We had the opportunity to make a major uh, investment in uh, Kennesaw State University's business school. Uh, but I didn't want to just, first of all, we the, the gift we gave at the time was the largest gift ever given to the school. But we did it because of two things. We knew, one, it could help the business school, but more importantly, we felt that our gift would lead to bigger gifts going forward, that it would say this school uh, is worthy of seven-figure, eight-figure gifts, and that's exactly what's happened. But more than anything for me, I didn't want to just write a check and not help and work with the school, because the school was always called Entrepreneurial U, which is what attracted me there in the first place. And so over the course of these many, many years now, uh, I've had the opportunity to lecture there. I've had the opportunity to teach my own class uh, called Concept to Counter uh, in 2013. And, uh, you know, as I've said earlier, I mean, I've gotten way more benefit uh, for my involvement. I hope I've given some benefit to students and life lessons and know, letting them know they can do more possibly than they think they can. But uh, it's been a wonderful relationship. And this year is the 25th anniversary of the naming of the Coles College of Business. And so my book came out. At, at, by the way, I did not realize it was the 25th anniversary. It was just coincidental. And so this is the year of the Coles College. And uh, I probably have been on campus now 15 different times for different events. I've got an three or four more that I know are scheduled, and there'll probably be more between now and the end of the year. You know, the uh, concept to counter program, the course that you put together for KSU, um, is one that I, I personally think would have appeal at on any college campus or in any business school because you brought together a group of luminary business people. Um, just touch on a couple because, you know, it, it, it's a uh, tribute to your n- network of associates um, that you were able to bring in some, some really uh, powerful um, business uh, people uh, to, to, to as part of an ongoing lecture series. So the, the idea of Concept to Counter uh, was basically to teach, it was an MBA-level uh, course, and it was how to teach people to take an idea from an idea all the way into the marketplace, which I call the counter. Uh, and uh, what I did was I broke that concept down into 13 parts uh, from beginning to, uh, which I think I mentioned to you when we are uh, talking off camera, um, when uh, to the thir- 13th week, which was now that I built it, what do I do with it? And I brought in a, an expert in uh, mergers and acquisitions. But I had people like Arthur Blank that came in, and his subject was how do you take one set of business principles from one business to another? And founder of Home Depot, and now, you know, sports owner extraordinaire, and he's taken that to. Uh, the Falcons and uh, other teams that he owns, and I had him come in and talk about those business principles. I had um, uh, my former uh, my my friend John Williams, who unfortunately has passed away. I I had him come in and talk about how the t- 
the setback of what happened in the real estate industry and how he used his business principles to not only survive that, but in fact, do well during that period of time to the point where he started another company, uh, basically doing what he had been doing earlier. Uh, I had bankers come in. I had all these experts in every one of these different fields come in and teach you know, about building a business. Joe Rogers, who is the CEO of the Waffle House, he came in, and his subject was um, uh, operations and leadership, and he talked about servant leadership, uh, about how he would go to those stores and he would actually work behind the counter. He'd sweep the floors. He would cook. He would do whatever was necessary to show the people the value of every one of their jobs. And that you just... This course was beyond anything that you would normally expect to get out of a university. It was fantastic. It was really a power course, uh, no doubt, and I think you could have uh, filled uh, a, a large um, auditorium um, and, and, and just attracted a lot of people. I mean, who would not want to come in here? Arthur Blank and and uh, Joe Rogers, certainly the Waffle House, is uh, you know a business school model uh, for success in, in, in sure number of locations. And uh, John Williams, uh, for listeners not familiar with John Williams, uh, uh, the Post Properties uh, were some of the, the best designed and executed apartment. Uh, uh, and a brand new concept when he came out with it. That's right. They were like mm-hmm. landscaped and just really beautiful environments. Uh, and uh, he really um, created a whole new uh, direction for apartment building. Um, now we're going to turn to the book, and 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 as we talk about the book, uh, one uh, there are some themes throughout the book. Uh, one theme uh, throughout the book uh, is disruption, the role of disruption. I want you to share with us the role of disruption uh, as a strategy for positive change. Well, I think the one thing that. Uh you always have to remember if you're in business. And, again, one, one of the things I would like to say is I didn't write this book to boast about my success. I really wrote this book in hopes that it would motivate people to find a strength within themselves to do more than they think they can. That was the purpose of writing the book. But disruption for me uh, is always remembering that when you execute on an idea or a business – that that is your that is your ending point possibly, but if you've got sharp competitors, that's their starting point. Which means if they pick up on your idea, the first thing they're going to have to do is figure out how to do it better. But they've already got all the research you've done to get to that point. That's why I constantly talk about that. My idea of disruption is you can. It's called the four I's, which stands for information, innovation, implementation, and the most important one is improvement. You can't just execute on something and think you're done. What you have to do is constantly be looking at it and figuring out how to make it better. And that's how you keep from being disrupted. We disrupted the cookie business. We did it in a way that was never done before. And we wound up becoming the leaders of, of that industry. And, and I might add that uh, you can read uh, more about the four eyes if you get uh, a copy of the book. 
We're here with Michael Coles. We're going to take a break and talk more about the various chapters of his life and uh, the keys to success in life right after this break. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. We're here with Michael Coles, and we've been talking about various chapters of his life and chapters in his book, uh, Time to Get Tough, How Cookies, Coffee, and a Crash Led to Success in Business and in Life. Uh, Michael, uh, in in the book, there's a chapter entitled The Reckoning. Uh, I want to share with listeners some, you know, hardcore references to, to business, and you talk about David Halberstam's uh, book of the same name, The Reckoning. Uh, tell us why you think, uh, and you talk about this in the book, talk about uh, the U.S. auto industry paving the way for Japanese dominance as automakers and how that relates to making cookies. Well, uh, I read that book. Um, actually, I picked it up in an airport uh, in paperback and then later wound up buying a hard, hard copy. But what the book talks about is how the Japanese auto industry, it's changed somewhat, uh, caught the American big three, kind of caught them blindsided uh, by having a strategy of developing and building market share. But more than anything, you know, where they talked about the difference between um, how Americans looked at, you know, if you're a public company, it's basically reporting every 90 days and worrying about the next report where the Japanese auto industry was building for a 50-year way out into the future, making sure they were building high-quality cars. One of the great examples I talk about uh, in the book is that uh, one of the reasons that Japanese cars did so well in America is because they didn't rust. And this is hard to believe today because no cars rust anymore. But the principle that they used, it was called 
I think it's called negative paint, neg- negative uh, magnetic painting. And basically what you do is you magnetize the car with negative energy, and then the paint comes in at positive energy, and it, the undercoating coats the entire car. Underneath, every part of it gets undercoated. And that technology was actually developed by Ford Motor Company and licensed to the Japanese Motor Company, and it took Ford 10 more years before they actually put it into their own cars. So the point, I guess the point I'm making is, is that the Japanese automobile company were all about building cars that would last a long time, and the philosophy of American automobile companies at the time was building cars that people would trade every couple of years. It was called, you know, build obsolescence. Build building obsolescence. Yeah, building an obsolescence. And so, the, but the biggest thing that I got out of the book was it talked about how American companies were set up almost in this hierarchy, the way you would have a king, and then you would have the people below the king and, and below that person, and that the, anybody below that first level that reported to the king, their voice would never be heard except be interpreted by that person. And so I realized in my own business I had done the same thing, where in the Japanese company, if we're a person working down on the line could literally walk into the head of the company and say, I've got a better way of doing this. We're wasting a lot of money and time by doing it the way we are. And they could literally walk into the CEO's office. And so I realized I had kind of done the same thing. And so I revamped my own company. I created business cards with a direct line to my uh, office. Uh, when email came about, I had put my personal email on it. And anytime I visited a store, I would give that card to anybody who wanted it and let them know that any idea they had, they could bring it directly to me. And it, it virtually helped transform our company and keep it relevant. I, I love the, the story about how you um, started to um, develop uh, a large cookie and uh, you asked your people, um, what should we call this? And then finally, someone said, "You, you said, well, what? Are, someone said the the customers call it the cookie cake. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. We had actually hired a company to come up with names. I don't know how much remember how many thousands of dollars we spent, and they came back in with all these names. And I looked at them; they were all cute. And I said, "But let me ask a question. What do the customers call it? They say cookie cake, and I'm like." Well, why don't we call it cookie cake? You know, I mean, if, that, if that's what flows out of their mouth and that's the way they relate to it, let's just call it a cookie cake. And that's what we did. And, and still to this day, that's what it is. And in, you know, the chapter that you have on service, 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 it includes um, listening to your customers. And that's where you talk about information, <clears throat> innovation, implementation, and improvement. Uh, I urge listeners to get a copy of the book. And uh, again, you can start with Amazon, and you'll uh, you'll you'll get some really valuable lessons. I want to turn to your epilogue, um, and and we can go back if we have time uh, to any area that you want to touch on, Michael. But I'm going to read a list because I'm going to try to blow through this list. Um, there's valuable information in that epilogue. Right at the end of the book, you have. Epilogue, the first law of nature is growth. And under that, you have, one, take risk early in your career. Two, associate only with people of integrity. Three, find a mentor to guide your career. When you make your mark, become one. Four, 
Know what you don't know and surround yourself with people from whom you can learn. Five, even in a digital age, customers respond to respect and remember the personal touch. Six, have a clear mission and vision statement and make sure your team is fully committed to it. Seven, how you respond to the unexpected, which we touched on before. How you respond to the unexpected is the difference between success and failure. Eight, trust your employees and give them the opportunity to do their best work for you. Nine, use the skills that helped you build a great career or business to rebuild a better world. And number 10, never let someone else tell you that you cannot achieve or put limits on your potential. A great combination of, uh, of principles for life and not just business. Are, is there uh, any one of those areas uh, that you want to drill down to, and, and I'll, I'll ask you to start with taking risk early in life. Uh, your advice is similar to the advice that I've offered young people. Uh, tell us, um, tell us about taking risks early in your career. So, uh, when I was 22 years old, uh, I won a big sales contest for the company I was working for, and my company flew me back to uh, Detroit. Uh, first class. I had never flown first class. And I was sitting next to a guy who in today's world would not have been on that plane. He would have been on a private plane. It was the first time I'd ever seen a Rolex up close. Uh, and we chatted for, you know, an hour and a half or so on the way back. And just as the plane was about to land, I looked at him and asked the question, what advice would you give a young guy like me that's stepping out into the business world? And without hesitation, he just looked at me and he said, take risks. If you want to be successful, you're going to have to take risks. But take them as early as you can because as you you go through your life and you get older, your life's going to get more complicated and risk is going to become more risky and you're going to have a a tendency to not want to take those risks. But just as important to that, he said to me that – you know, you, you you know, right now, he said, if you take a risk now at your age, he said you can rebound. That's why it's important to do it young. But that doesn't mean as you get older, you still can't take risk because you also now have more experience. So the risks become less because you have a, a depth of knowledge to pull on throughout your life. And so that first one is... Uh, it, if you, if in fact that's what you want to do, do it as early as possible because we all know how complicated life gets with kids and families and everything else. What a great encounter, um, and what a what a great uh, thing to share with you uh, in that moment on the plane. Um, associating with people of integrity, uh, finding mentors to guide your career. Yeah, I'd love to talk uh, about the mentor thing. Yeah, let's talk yeah. about that because that that is what you are. That is what this book is is sharing, um, some principles that have served you well. You know, I, one of the things I talk about in the book is that there are four people who stepped in throughout my life and saved my life. Because, you know, my dad lost all his money when I was 10. Uh, my life changed dramatically. I grew up as a poor kid. But when I was uh, 13 years old, I met a guy named Irving Settler who owned uh, Dorwin's uh, Ivy Shop. He hired me to be a stock boy and mentored me. And eventually, by the time I was 16, I was doing all the buying for the store. And by the time I was 17, still in school, I was actually managing the store. 
hiring people and doing all the other stuff. Irving was incredible because he was the first person outside of my family that believed in me, and it made me feel like I had any kind of value. And here we are all these many years later. Irving is gone, unfortunately, and I'm still talking about him. And so what I'm try- I would say to the audience is that if you have made your mark, find someone that you can help make theirs. And it doesn't necessarily mean make their mark in business. Maybe it's just helping them make what may help them guide their guide them through their life because you will never know the kind of impact you can have. What a what a great uh, parting note here. Uh, find your Irving Settler, and if you can't and you can't find Michael Coles, get a copy of his book. Michael, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to be on the Business Hour and for sharing with us uh, so many really valuable lessons. I appreciate being here. You've been listening to the Business Hour here on America's Web Radio or on Fridays from 10 to 11. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you on the radio and Internet next week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.